Awesome. Well, I'm really grateful for y'all. Continue to labor. Um, hey, here's what you could pray for in the coming weeks. Could you pray that it would stop raining on Sundays? We've had one, one Sunday the entire year with sun. One Sunday. And so for your benefit and for mine, it's already dark enough at 8.30. And while we can't essentially experience it, it definitely helps us to get out of bed and get to worship if we get to experience some sunlight as we come into worship. Well, Lord willing, we'll get that next week. Easter feels like one of those Sundays that you should get sun. All right. We are going to be in John chapter 12 this morning, having finished up our series on Acts we're going to spend a couple of weeks simply um, doing some seasonal sermons around Palm Sunday and Easter next week before we dive into a new series in a couple of weeks. But John chapter 12, verses 1 through 13 is where we're going to be this morning. Read along in your own Bibles as I read out loud. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen for you. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. If you know John well, John chapter 11 is where Jesus had done that. So that's just the previous chapter. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming out to Jerusalem, was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. May the word of our God stand forever. Well, it's Palm Sunday, um, and uh, while it's fairly uh, dark in here and maybe not feel exactly like a Palm Sunday, like a, you don't think about palms when it's this rainy and cold outside, but it's Palm Sunday, and if you, it was we, if you are familiar with the church calendar and what happens on Palm Sunday, it's Palm Sunday is highlighted and given, is pronounced by its worship, that there is this worship of Jesus. They wave palms, and they throw their garments at his feet, and there's these people worshiping him, and there's people even shouting, and this is a kingly, victorious entrance of Jesus. But we focused on this in past years, but when you look at it, when the gospel writers write about it, if Jesus is who he said he was, and if Jesus is coming to accomplish what they believe that he should be coming to accomplish, there's an irony to the Palm Sunday text. There's actually something that's very uh, hollow about these celebrations, there's probably only maybe four to 500 people welcoming Jesus. And if, you were the, if it was all the people of Israel welcoming who Jesus is, claims to be, the king of Israel, the one who's going to bring peace and righteousness and justice and usher in a peaceable kingdom, a kingdom that all the peoples of the earth are going to enjoy, wouldn't you think that more than four or 500 people might get a little excited about this? 
Instead, it's just a few of Jesus' most faithful followers. And even at the end of it, Jesus enters in, there's this celebration, and there's a clear divide in which he enters into the city, and then everyone seems to kind of just go away. And Jesus goes in the temple, and there's no great celebrations there. There's something hollow. There's a, a dud there. There's a, actually a smallness to the worship on Palm Sunday that is not fitting the worship that you would have for one who is as lovely as this king. But the story that immediately follows or immediately precedes Jesus' entry is a worship that seems fitting for a king like Jesus. We see in the story this morning in Mary's worship of Jesus, her love for Jesus, a display of worship that is more fitting than even the ones we see on Palm Sunday. As Jesus enters in to the Jerusalem, she prepares him with a beautiful and utterly stunning and moving depiction of what worship ought to look like for us. And perhaps it is the nature of our hypervisual culture, but I think what she displays here is something that we, we may not use this word, but something that we long for our lives. And that's this, that she displays a beautiful worship, beautiful love. That word beauty, with HD cameras and our our love for this in our world, in, in social media, that we are constantly trying to create a world that is beautiful, and that's a good thing. So the question I want to look at this morning is, what would a beautiful worship look like? What does a beautiful love look like? What is, what is the, the love, the kind of beauty and worship that this kind of king deserves? This is how Jesus describes Mary's worship as beautiful. In Mark chapter 14, verse 6, all the gospel writers give, have a parallel account of this event. In, in Mark, in his account, he says this. When the, 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 the leaders there and the people who are upset about how, how lavish her gift was to Jesus, Jesus responds to their anger at her in this way. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? And he describes what she has done in this way. She has done a beautiful thing to me. A beautiful thing to me. When Jesus calls something beautiful, we should listen. We tend to think of beauty as being that which is in the eye of the beholder, very subjective. But when the king of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who dictates and declares purpose and value and worth says, that's beautiful, this is no longer in the realm of subjectivism. This is objective truth about what is beautiful and what we see. What is beautiful worship? What does beautiful love look like? Mary shows us. And that's where I want to start this morning and spend the majority of our time. The beauty of Mary's love. We talked to you about the setting of what's going on here, of her display of love. The setting is this. At the beginning, we, uh, John tells us that there's going to be about six days before the Passover. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and it's the, for the third time, and what will be the last time. This is the great culmination of his earthly ministry. John, beginning in chapters 11 and 12, is making a clear beeline. The rest of the book is about Jesus' passion week and leading to the cross. And we see in verse 12 of this text, I read verses 12 and 13 to give you a a sense of the setting, that this is the day before Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. He knows what is before him in the next week, that he is going to enter. He's going to be rejected at once, a kind of a measly celebration of his kingship. And then he's going to be rejected out of hand and ultimately put on a cross at the end of that week. We see that Jesus is coming into the city outside of Jerusalem in Bethany as a 
preparation stop before he enters Jerusalem. And he stops and there's a party. It's a Saturday evening party. And, and actually what most commentators believe what this is, is a celebration of what Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead. Now that's, that's, a, that's a celebration that is worthy to be had, right? That you would come, that Jesus is the guest of honor here, that everyone's going, that guy raised somebody from the dead last week. That's something to celebrate. And so that's what they're doing and of course, uh, he's sitting there with Lazarus. Lazarus would be somebody that everyone wants to see. It's not every day you get to meet a guy who's been dead for three days and has risen from the, from the dead. And of course, we see, if you're familiar with Martha, Martha's running around serving tables, as she is uh, often doing in the gospel text. But where this story takes a great turn, and where this big party becomes a party that no one will ever forget, is when Mary walks in. And has this unbelievable display of beautiful love and worship. And I want to see three active descriptions of her beauty. Of the beauty in her love and worship this morning. The first thing I want you to see is that she pours the perfume all out. In Mark chapter 14 verse 3 in the parallel account it says this. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper as he was reclining at table. A woman, John clarifies it as being Mary, came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. You have to remember at this time and in, the, in, the, in this day that when people came to dinner, this is a culture that has no refrigeration. It's hot. There is open sewers. It is nasty out. Very, you don't get a shower, but maybe once a week, a bath. You don't get cleansed very often. And so when people all gather together into an enclosed space, what's it like? It doesn't smell really good. And so often what they would do, the guests or the the person who was hosting would bring out a perfume and dab it on everyone's forehead as a means of covering up the stench in the room. And so this would not have been shocking that Mary would come in with a bottle of perfume. But what is clear is she brings the treasured bottle of perfume. And, and even that wouldn't have been that shocking. Here's Jesus. He's the, he's the honored guest. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. Oh, yes, he is worthy of such honor to receive the special perfume, the super expensive perfume dabbed upon him in this moment. But what is shocking in this is how Mark describes it is when she breaks it open and she pours it all out upon Jesus' head. And there is an audible gasp in the room. She pours it out. Judas actually says that this bottle of perfume is worth 300 denarii. To give you a sense, it's a year's wages. A sense of what, what that means for us is, you know, the most expensive perfume in the world, in the world was, was worn by Kate Middleton on her wedding day. It was called uh, Clive Christian Number no. 1. It's the single most expensive perfume in the entire world. One drop of it, one ounce of it, costs $2,150. That means your normal small 12-ounce bottle of uh, Clive Christian Number no. 1 costs over $30,000. Basically, that is the annual income of a, your normal Georgian, a year's wages. That is what she is dumping on Jesus' head, at least something that is worth thirty to perhaps sixty or $70,000. But what I want you to see, even that, it is utterly costly. But there is actually something more going on in, the, in what she is pouring out upon Jesus' head. You see, this perfume that she poured out was more than something that was just really, uh, you know, something that was really expensive. Some actually believe that this was Mary's dowry. That this was the means by which she was going to be married. Back then, when they would give away a girl, a woman to her, to her spouse, 
that the groom, that they would give a gift and that this, this gift would go into his family and be a part of his worth. Other people, other commentators believe that this is actually essentially their family savings funds. That all of their worth is caught up in this so that if everything in the world goes badly, if there's an earthquake or if there is a, a, a great storm that destroys all their crops and kills all of their livestock or there's a great famine and they don't have any food, that this bottle of perfume, they can go and sell it and they can get them through a year or two years and get them the food that they need. In other words, this is her security system. This is more than simply being something of great wealth. This is probably 70, 80% of their overall value. This is their investments and their savings. And so here is what Mary is saying to Jesus in her love and her worship. She's saying, my love is not conditioned by the cost, by the cost. There is no cost too great to display to you love and worship. This is so different from our love. So often, I think as much as we would be pour ourselves out for others, that we would, we would give great gifts for other people, I, I think there's, there's within us, there's a limit that we would go. There's a degree, in fact, but there's something when we actually think about true and beautiful, agape, unconditional love, that there's something that's right about saying there is no cost that is too great for me to display my love to you. If you, your child were to come to you or your spouse were to come to you and you were to say, and they would have a, a, a terrible disease and they would say it's going to cost you a million dollars and you, you would have to sell, you have to go into incredible debt. It would bankrupt you in order to provide, to save the life of this child or this spouse. And you'd go, that's just a cost I can't bear. We would look at that and we would say, that is, that is horrendous. That is horrendous. But she is, seen, she is saying, I, man, true love, unconditional love is the love that says there is no cost. There is no cost too great for me to display my love to you. Think of the old hymn, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. What's the line say? Take my silver and take my gold, not a mite would I withhold. That in order to display love to Jesus, a right worship to him, A worship that involves our whole life is a worship that says there is no cost too great. Second, we see that she, not only does she pour it out, but she anoints Jesus' feet. And this is a beautiful display of love and worship. She anoints his feet. Remember, this is again, this is a a task that is demeaning in that day. In a world with open sewage and animal droppings everywhere, where there is no protection to with closed-toed shoes... The collecting place of all that was nasty in the world was where? Your feet. And so when they'd come in for dinner, someone would have to clean the feet. But in those times, a Jewish person, um, you have to understand, the lowest of the low servant or slave would do this, would be the ones who would, who would clean feet. But in those days, when a Jewish person would declare death, it's not like the slavery as we understand it in chattel slavery as we had it in the United States. But when a Jewish person would declare debt, it worked far more kind of like debtor's prison. That if you were in debt to somebody else, you could sell yourself to them and work for them in order to pay off your debt. But the rabbi said this, that even as you gave yourself as a servant to somebody, the rabbis would say this, that no Jewish servant could be required to wash feet. It didn't matter how much you owed or how lowly you were or how undignified of a person you were. If you were a Jewish person, you did not have to wash feet because it was considered too lowly and too gross. This is why it's so shocking in John chapter 13 that Jesus gets down 
and washes his disciples' feet. But what is Mary saying in this act of love as she gets down? When she stoops lower than the normal servant and slave would have to stoop in order to wash feet. She is saying this, that there is nothing you cannot ask of me. I am your servant. She is saying that as your servant, Jesus, I have my rights. I have my dignity. I have my honor. I have this control in my life in which I can say, I will serve you, but I won't stoop this low. I don't have to. I can still be your servant and your slave, but I don't have to wash feet. What she's saying here is this, is it doesn't matter how low I have to stoop. I will do anything to serve you. I am your servant. This is unconditional service. We have an unconditional cost. We also see that she has unconditional service to Jesus. This is love on display. To so trust, to so give yourself to another that your life is meant to serve them. When this kind of servant love is given, it cannot be taken and it cannot be demanded. It is only beautiful when it is given, when it is laid down. It is a beautiful thing. A couple of years ago, there was... um, in the kind of the, the social media world, there was a story because, that got picked up by Desiring God of a particular couple. Their names were Ian and, and Larissa. And they were a young and happy couple. They were about to be engaged. They were lovely. They were attractive. They had a great future in front of them. were both moving towards having great jobs. And right before they got engaged, Ian, the future husband, had a, a terrible and horrific car crash that damaged his brain and his body severely and permanently. And for a number of years, they had the question, should we get married? Should we continue our relationship? And he struggled to be able to communicate. But ultimately, she had this question in front of her. If we get married, what it meant for her life is that she would be the only breadwinner. They would probably not ever have that much money. She would have to feed him, literally feed him each and every day. She would have to help him to the bathroom. She would have to clothe him every day. She would have to do all the cleaning and all the yard work and all the cooking. And they probably wouldn't be able to have children. And yet she decided that she was going to marry him. And she would serve him each and every day in this way as an act of love. And it was displayed. And people, there was a video that showed their marriage and showed a picture of what their, their marriage was like. And they, they showed scenes from their life. And it was a beautiful act of love and service. Now what she is living into is simply what our marriage ought to be. Her eyes, she simply went into marriage with her eyes truly opened of what it ought to be. Of what unconditional service to your spouse really looks like. To say my covenant for love for you means I give my life to you. I wake up each and every day to say I will serve you. I will care for you. And this is the beauty of my love for you. This is what Mary displays for Jesus. Jesus. Mary is saying I will not allow my love for you to be conditioned by my lack of control. You control my life. I am your servant. You can tell me where to go and you can tell me what to do. It is the difference between this and pouring out this great cost is this because for some of you, God may be asking you and you're looking at it and going, I can give up great funds, a lot of money for kingdom work. And you may do that readily. But what happens, what happens if God comes to you and calls you to be a servant And he removes control of your finances. You see, the first step of love is to say, I can give these things up. And yet you can still remain in control of your funds. I'm the one giving these things. I'm the one giving this great cost. But what if God comes into your life and says, you are my servant. And as my servant, I want you to walk through financial ruin. And praise me in the midst of it. 
and there you lose control of your life. Can he ask that of you? Can God ask anything of you? Beautiful love is on display when you follow no matter the cost. And beautiful love is on display when you say, whatever you ask, I will do. My life is not my own. My life is yours to be used in whatever way you choose. Third thing she does to display her beautiful love and worship is she lets down her hair. And she wipes her feet with her hair is what it says. She, in order to wipe his feet with her hair, she has to unbind her hair to do this. Now for us, we tend to look at that and go, it just, it just kind of increases the grossness factor of the service, right? It's like, wow, look at, isn't that amazing that she would clean his feet with her hair? But that's not what they would have, those, the original audience would have shot, thought was so shocking about this. A woman in those days never let her hair down in public. Never. In fact, there were laws that if a woman, a married woman, ever let her hair down in the presence of another man, that that was grounds for divorce. The husband could leave her. Because it was understood to be an act in that culture of such intimacy, of such openness and welcome. Everyone in the room would have been scandalized by this. Do you see her love for Jesus? She becomes utterly vulnerable in her love for Jesus. She welcomes him into her life as an expression of worship. She says, I don't care what everybody else thinks. And in fact, in some ways, I don't care what you think. I'm inviting you in. I want you to see me as I really am. The disciples vehemently chastise Mary. She is open to public ridicule and derision by everyone in the party. Her reputation is probably ruined by this act. Her status in the community will be in question. And the only thing keeping her from perhaps being publicly stoned, because that's what would happen to a single woman if she did this, is Jesus saying, what she has done for me is beautiful. And saying, no, 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 no. Do not yell at her. Instead, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing. Do you know what it is? How beautiful it is to be vulnerable before the Lord. What I want you to see here is that there is no conditions. Her love is not conditioned by her degree of exposure. That God can know every part of her life. That he has welcomed into an intimate relationship with her. The true and beautiful love is a love that is exposed and that is vulnerable. And vulnerable love is the most beautiful kind. My wife's here this morning, and so this will be embarrassing for her. My wife is not one of those who cries very often. <clears throat> and therefore, there's actually greater power when she does. Because when she does cry, there is an unbelievable beauty and vulnerability and intimacy to that for me. That when she invites me in such a way that she's emotionally lets her guard down in that way and invites me into her life in a moment in which she is tender and open... It is the place in which you can most be wounded when you have tears. To be rejected in that moment. But there is a beauty to my wife when she, her eyes become this bluish green. And there is something about that that draws me towards her. And you understand this, right? Any husband, any mom and dad who has a child who cries, when you see that and that vulnerability and they come crying to you, there is an openness there. And this is the expression of beautiful love to say, I am open to you. I am vulnerable before you. Tears communicate the opening of your heart and your affections. 
She is utterly, this woman is utterly vulnerable, and this is astoundingly beautiful in her act of trust before the Lord. I allow you into my life. I allow you to see the shame and the guilt. Let me stop real quick. Some of you, you live a very dutiful Christian life. And you would say, man, there is no cost that I would not give up for Jesus. And I will serve him. I'll go to the ends of the earth doing mission trips for Jesus. And yet there is something that has been done to you or that you've done that you will not allow the grace of God to speak into it. And you hold off your heart to him in that way. And there's a wall between you and the Lord. But what I want you to see in this final act of love is what this vulnerability communicates about the full depth of a beautiful love. You see, when Mary lets her hair down, she is saying that there is no part of my life, there is nothing in her life that can keep Jesus away. There's no part of who she is or what she's done or what's been done to her that is withheld from Jesus. She has not withheld her heart and her love. In this vulnerable act, she's saying, I love you. And when she pours out the perfume upon Jesus, she is saying, yes, take my silver and take my gold, not a mite with I withhold. When she touches his feet and anoints his feet, she's saying, take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Right? That's the servant's attitude. She's losing control of her life. But when, when she lets down her hair, I want you to see this, from the hymn, it's like she says these lines, take my love, O Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure sore. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. You see, you can give all your money away, and you can give your life as a missionary to the Lord in the toughest and most difficult places in the, in the world, and you can actually still not delight in who Jesus is for you. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, it says this. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What this saying is you can say, I know, I know, I owe you everything, Lord. I know everything I possess and every part of my life is yours, but I don't delight in giving you these things. You see, true, beautiful love is a love that delights in your sacrifice, that delights in the cost and giving these things up, who delights in letting Jesus have control of your life. The Lord does not just want your obedience and generosity and tithing and in worshiping. He wants you to love it as well. This is why there's this thing called a cheerful giver, because he wants you to be more than simply a dutiful soldier. He wants you to be a loving soldier who says, this is my loving delight to do these things. Where Mary says, I, Lord, I give myself to you. I give my love for you. What we must not say is, Lord, I will give you my stuff and my tithe and my time, but I'm going to hold the deepest delight over here. I'll do these things to do the, the religious, dutiful thing, but my recreation cannot be touched. My children cannot be touched. My sports cannot be touched. My social delights cannot be touched. That I will hold on to these things as the ultimate delights of my life. No, the truly beautiful love is when we have service and sacrifice and vulnerability, but ultimately when we delight in displaying all of those things for our Savior. Are you able to give to the Lord everything that he deserves without any regard to the cost to you? Because for some of you, what you're doing is you think this way. I've done this service in the past, and you're keeping score. I gave that money to the church. I did this, 
I did that. But one who delights in Jesus in this way, who says, it is the great delight in my life, you stop keeping score because it doesn't matter. Because all you're saying is, it is my, I just love displaying my love for you in this way. You stop thinking about it in terms of some chart that you have to keep up with. Do you and I fail to love him with an unfeigned kind of devotion? Mary loves in this way. The love of Mary, it is costly and it's servant-hearted and it's vulnerable. But in the end, what is most beautiful about it is it's delightful. It is cheerful. She loves to display love in this way. Now, what is the reaction of those around Jesus at this? They're scandalized, right? They're appalled. In fact, in Mark chapter 14, verse 15, it says they rebuked her harshly. The word for harshly in that word, that word literally means they bellowed at her. They shouted at her like an animal grunting. That when she breaks this flask and she lets down her hair, they're, I mean, they're viciously angry at her. In fact, it says, Judas says, why wasn't this money given to the poor? Now we know, right, from John's gospel, he tells us that Judas has some secondary motivations here, that he wants to be able to steal the money. But Judas is directly being compared to Mary. That's what John is beginning to develop here. He is the foil. It is Mary versus Judas. And what John is saying is, there's really only two options for you. Either you are like Mary or you're like Judas. And you might think that's a little bit harsh, to put it in those kind of stark terms. But it's either this. Either you sell out Jesus as Judas did, or you are completely sold out for Jesus. Judas betrays him. Either Jesus is there for your own means and for your life, or you make yourself available to Jesus for his ends and for his means. The issue is this. Am I sticking to the Lord as long as he meets my needs? Or am I sticking with him and loving with him no matter the cost? I'll stick with Jesus and I'll love Jesus and I'll give Jesus my worship as long as he helps me with my problems and as long as he blesses me, as long as he helps me excel at work. Or am I just pursuing Jesus really for what he can give me or am I delighting in who he is for me and all the who he is? Mary has learned to say that no matter what he gives, not only will I obey him, but I will work it into my heart that he is so lovely and so beautiful that it doesn't matter what he brings into my life, I will love him and I will delight, I will delight in serving him even in the most difficult circumstances. This is the difference between duty and delight. For many of you, for many churches, there's a lot of duty Christianity. A lot of duty Christianity, but desire and delight is a much better motivation. It's a much better Christianity. Now, so I want you to, if you're going to love Jesus rightly in your worship, you need to give costly to him. You need to let him have control of your life and serve him. You need to be vulnerable for the Lord. And therefore, but then what I'm asking you on this last one, I'm saying you have to like it. You have to want to because you love him so much. And so what should be going on in your heart right now is going, I don't know how to make myself do that. Because we can't conjure up delight in our hearts on our own. We can't just sit there and, and go, I'm, that's it. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to delight in Jesus. I'm going to delight in Jesus. I'm going to delight in Jesus. That's not how it works, is it? Where does this, how do you turn the delight on in your heart? How do you get some kind of fountain that flows in this way? Where does this desire come from? 
comes where Mary's desire came from. See, you've got to see the wonder of the love of your Savior. That's the second thing I want you to see this morning, the beauty of Mary's Savior, and we'll be brief on this. You see, Mary has become conscious and deliberate. She's conscious and deliberate about what she's doing. When Judas complains about this lavish gift, Jesus responds by saying, leave her alone. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. Burial is the key word there. This is the day before Palm Sunday. The day before Jesus enters in Jerusalem. And what is going to happen to him in the coming week? He's going to be crucified on the cross and he's going to be buried. And when someone is going to be buried, what would they do? They would prepare the body with fragrant offerings. They would pour these spices and ointments and perfumes upon the body. Some commentators, now what they, what they believe that Mary, some people believe that Mary is looking at this and saying she knows what Jesus is going to do for her by going to a cross. That she knows all the theological implications that Jesus is going to go for and be her atonement and atone for her sins. I don't necessarily think that Mary understands all that. I don't think she got it in that degree, in, to that degree. But you see, Mary would have known this. In John chapter 11, that because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, some friends of Mary went and told the Pharisees, and now they're plotting to kill Jesus. And she knows that. That she does know. And so what she is seeing in Jesus is one who came into their city and gave her brother life, saved her family in a way, and said, I will lay down my life in order to give life for your brother. And the consciousness of that truth that Jesus would give his life for her life and for her brother's life is where the heart of wonder comes from. How, you, know, you know, she can get it from just seeing that. How much more should you and I on the other side of the cross who see the atonement of Jesus should see the wonder of what Jesus has done for her and for you and me. You see, the heart will not be moved to love beautifully until you see the love of your Savior and your God for you. That there is a beautiful love that God has displayed for you. Do you see the cost of your salvation? I'm going to walk through this really quickly. The Father gives the Son to be put to death. And in this we see the fullness of God's beautiful love for us. Now the beauty of Mary's love was seen, remember, her, the costliness, its service, its vulnerability, and ultimately her delight in it. But ultimately, Jesus has a sacrifice that has all those things, but infinitely more. Let me just run through this for you. Jesus was poured out. He was poured out the same way that she pours out this perfume. In fact, you see, Jesus was the extravagant, costly perfume that was poured out for you and me. In Psalm chapter 22, verse 14, Jesus on the cross quotes from Psalm 22. And everyone understands, who reads the Psalms, understands that it is a quote, it's a prayer of the man who's going to be on the cross, who's going to die. And it says in verse 14 of Psalm 22 that I am being poured out. That my body is poured out for you. Jesus is poured out to the very last drop for you and I. He is the ultimate alabaster jar that is crushed, that is broken open for you and me. But not only that, he's costly. It's the costly, he pours himself out. But not only that, but he serves us. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how did he serve? To give his life as a ransom for many but there is no, there is nothing that God cannot ask of Jesus in his display of love for you. That is amazing. And you think Mary's cost, that Mary's service was undignified, that she would wipe feet. Jesus was naked in front of all people. He was naked. The cross was seen as the most undignified, dishonorable way to die. 
And yet Jesus served us by becoming a ransom for us. And then I also want you to see that Jesus became vulnerable to death, but it was his delight to do so. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, it says this, Having this mind among yourselves, Paul's saying, Have this mind, people, church, be like Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here's how Jesus was, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He was God, and he became a servant. The, the divine one became killable. That's what happened at the cross. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what we find out in other parts of Philippians is that he does so. Why? For the joy that was set before him. The delight that he actually lays down his life. He becomes vulnerable, and it was his delight to do so, to be killed on your behalf, to win you. And why, why, does it, why, was, this, why was the cost poured out for you and me? Mary did it because Jesus had saved her brother from death and it would cost him his life. She was looking at something beautiful, and so she said, in order to honor something beautiful, I'm going to honor it with a beautiful love. But why did Jesus do that for you and me? Because we were so lovely and beautiful? Because we had served him so faithfully? By no means. But he does it to take you from being stinky to make you fragrant before him. There's a motif in regards to sacrifice in the Bible that the sacrifices are a fragrance before God's. You see it all the way back to Cain and Abel, that God loves Abel's sacrifice and is a fragrant offering before him. Now, why was there these had to be these fragrant offerings? We see it throughout the temples as well and the tabernacle sacrifices. It was the smell of meat to cover over the stench of sin is what it was. Because in Romans 3, it says, it describes our sin in this way. It describes us and how we smell. It says, we are like an open grave. What does rotting flesh smell like? It ain't good. It isn't good. It's pretty nasty. But we see throughout this motif of sacrifice and bringing a sacrifice before the Lord that there is something that is sweet smelling in the sacrifice. There was actually a practice in the Old Testament where the high priest on the single day and the one day when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement with the blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people, the last thing he would do before he went to the Holy of Holies when he would enter, the, he would pass through this room that had incense burning. You know, you're supposed to put on perfume or cologne, you spray it in the air, and what do you do? You walk through it. That's what he's doing. As he moves into the Holy of Holies, he walks through the incense so that even as he enters in, he is covered over with the fragrance of that room and that ointment. And that is what Jesus has done for us because Jesus is the perfect fragrance for us. What Mary is doing here is she is symbolically in a way, she doesn't know it, but we can see it looking back, is that what all commentators understand this, that this would have been so fragrant and so potent a perfume that she put on Jesus that he would have smelled an unbelievable smell like roses throughout this whole week. That when he was on trial for you, he smelled fragrant for you. When he was beaten for you, he smelled fragrant. When he was dying on the cross, he smelled like this. And when he went to his burial, he smelled in this way. But ultimately, it wasn't about how he physically smelled. Because when Jesus died, he was ultimately your fragrance before God the Father. Because what does he take before the God the Father? is he takes his righteousness on your behalf so that you are covered in the fragrance of what he has done for you. Two things happened on the cross. First, Jesus took all your stench, the stench of all your sin, 
And that's wonderful. But he did more than that. He then covers you with the fragrance of his righteousness. Which means this, brothers and sisters, that when you come before God and worship on a Sunday morning and on a Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. to do your devotional time, and when you cry out to him in the midst of suffering, you, when God smells you, he smells Jesus. He smells the fragrance of Jesus, the beautiful offering. And as you come and draw near to Jesus, this is what empowers you to come and to lay him yourself at his feet. You know why Mary understood and appreciated Jesus so much? You know what we see from Mary? Every time we see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. She studies at his feet. She throws herself at his feet when her brother dies. And she then throws herself at the feet of Jesus in worship. And she does so because she smells his fragrance. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have offering and acceptance before God because you smell like Jesus? For some of you, you're living a duty-filled Christian life in which you go, Jesus has done a lot for me. That's really great. He's done all these things for me, but I have to, my life, I've got to make it smell good in my own, on my own means, on my own terms. Don't do that. If that's where you've been, I would call you to start over your Christianity. Start afresh and anew with the passion of Jesus Christ. Start there and begin by gazing upon the beauty of Jesus' love for you. Gaze upon the fragrance, beauty of Jesus' love and what he has done for you. And, and look at that more than anything else. You know the expression, you are what you eat? In regards to worship and love, I think there's a better one. You are what you look at. You are what you gaze upon. You are what you admire. And when you gaze upon Jesus and you stay there, you will find that you will be satisfied in a way that frees you up to give up anything, anything as worship to him. You are what you gaze upon. This week we're going to celebrate the cross and the resurrection. And as we enter into Passion Week, here's what I call you to do, to gaze upon the cross there's an old hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and it goes like this. When I survey the wondrous cross upon the wit which the Prince of Glory died. What are you supposed to do there? Survey. Look. See. Gaze. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? It's only when you get that can you sing the final verse, which is this. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing and so divine? Until you understand the amazement and the love of it, you cannot sing the final line. Demands my soul, my life, and my all. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that um, for this unbelievable example and illustration of what our worship and love for you ought to look like. Gracious God, we pray that we would be struck by it, by the weight of it, by the depth of it. But Lord, if, if most people in here are like, like me, I'm, um, I'm, keying, I'm counting... I'm keeping a record. And so often the Christian life and loving you and worshiping you is not my greatest delight. And so to that end, Lord, I pray that this week as we enter into Passion Week and as we read about what you've done for us, as we come together to celebrate the Lord's table on Friday and as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ next week, as we think about and ponder these things, I pray that you would change our hearts. 
that, Lord, you change us from duty to delight, that our greatest delight and desire would be you. Lord, do that as we gaze upon the, the beauty of Christ Jesus and his love for us, displayed on the cross. Lord, we can't turn that on. So Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us right now and in this week to do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.